At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a world full of information, literally at our fingertips. Among all the claims of truth in the world, it can be hard to separate fact from fiction. This is often the case when it comes to the Christian faith. Do we understand the truth of what we believe, and can we articulate it to others? In The Essentials, Why Truth Matters, we'll use the affirmations of the Apostles' Creed as a guide to teaching us the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Join us each week as we affirm the foundational truths of Christianity so we can stand on the bedrock of God's truth and share that good news with the world. Great to be with you today. Now, the year was 1976. That's when a long-haired, knicker-wearing Christian thinker by the name of Francis Schaeffer released a book. And in that book, uh, he wrote some words that would, uh, would impact Christ followers for generation. Now, I'm guessing before I go any further, I need to address the fact that I actually said knicker-wearing. Uh, some of you are still caught up on that. Yeah, the guy who used to wear knickers. But okay, that's, that's another story. Anyway, in his book, uh, How Should We Then Live?, Francis Schaeffer seeks to address what he saw as the primary issue facing people of faith. Now, remember, I said 1976. Here's what he writes. He should, we should note this curious mark of our age that the only absolute allowed is the absolute insistence that there is no absolute. I'm going to read that statement one more time. We should note this curious mark of our age, that the only absolute allowed is the absolute insistence that there is no absolutes. Now, Schaefer wrote that almost 50 years ago, and the fact is that it has never been more true than it is right now. Never been more true than it is today. Relativism has become our cultural norm. Now, here's what I mean when I say that. Walk on a college campus today. Listen to a popular podcast. Watch a talk show on TV, any of those places, you will find relativism. And here's what I mean by that. Whatever is true for you, well, that's good. That's cool. How many of you have heard this phrase? Well, that's your truth. How many of you have heard that? Everyone's point is equally valid. truth. Well, that, that's dependent upon, upon you. You then become the arbiter of truth. You are the one that determines what is true and what is not true. Now, here's the problem for you and for me. As we are here today in church, we are followers of Jesus. Many of us have actually bought into that type of thinking. It's not just something that's happening outside of the church. It's actually happening in the context of the church as well. You might say, well, Pastor, I'm not, I'm not so sure about that. Well, in a study conducted by Barna Research in partnership with a place called Summit Ministries, uh, they found that 23% of Christians strongly agree with this statement. What is morally right, what is morally wrong depends on what the individual believes. One quarter of all believers buy that. Now, White Lake family, as I stand here today, I want you to know that what I just said is not biblical. It's not biblical. It's not what the Bible teaches. 
Instead, those thoughts, those ideas are shaped, influenced by what's going on in our culture. So as we gather today on a Sunday morning, the question is, what is the church to do about it? I mean, we can acknowledge that that's going on in our world, but we also have to face the reality that it's happening in the context of the church too. So what is the church going to do about it? What are the questions that the church needs to be asking? Or perhaps better yet, where can the church go for guidance on the question of what is truth? What is truth? Well, this morning we are going to look at two places, and you are sitting in a church, so I'm guessing that you can guess the first place we are going to go. Where would the first place that believers might go to find truth? The Bible. Excellent. Yeah, I want you to know you're far smarter than the first service. Far more holy, far more spiritual. I mean, you were right there. I love it. (laughs) The Bible is the first place that you might expect to hear of truth spoken of in the church. The second is actually a historical statement that many of us might be familiar with. We've heard it. Maybe we've heard someone else talk about it or make the statement but we've never really grabbed a hold of the reality of that statement ourselves. And that statement is something called the Apostles' Creed. And the fact of the matter is because truth matters, it's important for you and I as believers to seek it, to know it, to believe it. And so we're going to dig into God's Word in just a moment. But first, let's humble our hearts before its author. Let's pray. Gracious, almighty God, you have invited us here today to worship you, to gather as your people, to acknowledge your goodness and your attributes, that you are holy, that you are righteous, that you are other. God, we do that today. But we also acknowledge today that you've given us your word because you desire communion with your people. You desire your people to know you. And so God, in a world that is increasingly moving beyond engaging with truth, God, it is our heart's desire today to immerse ourselves in your truth. But God, to do that, we need eyes to see it clearly. We need ears to hear it clearly. We need humble hearts before you as you minister to us through your truth. So God, would you do that in the course of these next few moments? We humble ourselves before you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we are beginning our new sermon series. It is titled, The Essentials, Why Truth Matters. And we start by acknowledging that God's word is truth. That's going to serve as our guide and really direct us into two different things. And both are important. It's going to impact the way we think. So it's going to influence right thinking and it's going to influence godly living. So it's not with just our head, but it is also how we live and how that gets played out into our lives. 
And as I mentioned, in addition to the word, we're going to stand in agreement with believers across the centuries on the essential teachings of the Christian faith. Now, to do that, as I mentioned, we are going to be engaging deeply and consistently with this shared statement of belief known as the Apostles' Creed. Now, it is a statement that boldly proclaims the very essence, the very essence of the Holy Trinity. And it details for us the gospel. What is the gospel? It explains it to you and to me. And the hope is that what would happen as we dig into this text today and over the course of the next number of weeks, that we would find our faith bolstered, strengthened, as we engage with a statement of faith that believers have been affirming together since the second century. So as we begin our series, what we're going to do is we're going to work our way through this historic creed line by line. So if you don't like what we're talking about today, hang on, we're going to get there in the following week, line by line. And what I want us to do today as we begin our series is to stand together and unite our hearts with believers from generation to generation in affirming the words of the Apostles' Creed. So let's say it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven is seated at the right hand of God the Father. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Universal Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, as you can go ahead and have a seat. Now, as I mentioned, there may be some lines in there that are confusing, you don't understand. Hang with us. We're going to get there and we're going to work through those together. But the fact is, those words, the words that we just stood, the words that we just proclaimed together, believers have been declaring for centuries. I mentioned that the research will show that this was proclaimed and affirmed as early as the second century. So I want us to just pause for a moment and wrap our minds around that. The statement that we just proclaimed, believers have been gathered and would profess that together since the second century. It's incredible, really. Now, yet the reality is many of us in our contemporary context When we recite the Apostles' Creed like that, that's unfamiliar to us. It didn't happen in the context that we grew up in. It wasn't part of our faith heritage. Truth is, this is one of the reasons why I love the Christian faith, because it has deep, deep roots. It's not something that started 25, 50 years ago. This goes back thousands of years. And so what we're going to do is seek to align ourselves with that reality 
And the fact that many of us may not be familiar with the Apostles' Creed, that's the very reason that I'm excited about it, that you and I get to dig into it together. That's why I think it is so very important because the, what the work or the words of the Apostles' Creed does for us is it is align our hearts and align our minds with the saints, the people of faith for generation upon generation who came before us. It's a beautiful picture. So let's begin by reflecting on the first phrase in the creed. It's very simple, very straightforward. I believe in God. That's certainly an obvious place for us to begin, isn't it? Maybe not. <laughs> you see, recent studies suggest that 81% of all, believe, or all Americans actually agree with that statement. 81% of all people in America would say, yeah, I believe in God. The question is, what God are they believing in? I might suggest to you that many in our culture today are not believing in the God, capital G, but they're believing in a God that is lowercase, a small g. That's why it is vitally important that you and I believe in the God of the Bible, that we believe in the God of the Scriptures, the God who is written of in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. You see, because believing in God is essential for you and I to possess truth. Now, today we're going to see the importance of this in the uh, New Testament book of Hebrews, and so I want to encourage you to grab your Bible. We're going to be looking at a couple different segments of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. If you're reading in your ESV, that is going to be 1007. Uh, if you do not have an ESV Bible and want to follow along behind me, you will be able to read it on the screen behind me. So now let's read Hebrews uh, chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3 and then verse 6. It says, Now faith... Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now let's skip down to verse 6. And without faith... It is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That's where we're going to end right now. You see, a foundational belief in God as detailed right here in Hebrews and captured in that first statement of the Apostles' Creed helps you and I see why faith is essential. Faith is essential because belief in God is how you and I draw near to him. We draw near to our God through faith, through belief. See, the writer of Hebrews here has been encouraging his readers to hold on to the faith. If you know this text, you'll know that the believers have been facing a lot of persecution. There's been a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. And the writer of Hebrews says, hold on to the faith. You and I can identify with that, can't we? I mean, as we consider when we cling to our faith, we long to hold on to something firm in the midst of our darkest hours. 
those deep places of pain, when life is the hardest, you and I don't just cast our cares to the wind. No, we run to our God. It's in those moments that we lean hardest upon the God who is there. I love the way J.I. Packer describes this kind of belief. Here's what he writes. He says, when I say that I believe in God, what I am doing is I am professing my conviction that God has invited me to this commitment and that I am accepting that invitation, that I am accepting his invitation. Now let's consider Packer's words for a little bit a little bit longer and in a more personal way. Have you received this invitation? God is inviting you. The question is have you responded to the invitation of the commitment of belief? It's a fair question that every single person here should in fact wrestle with. Because what Packer highlights is really what is covered in those first three verses of that text. And it is what faith in God actually looks like. First is the acknowledgement that God exists. That the creator and sustainer of the universe detailed for us in the Bible is in fact who he says he is. That's step one. Yeah, I acknowledge that God exists. Next, it's an understanding that God does, in fact, bless those who draw near to him. And he blesses us with his presence. As we draw near to him, he blesses us with his powerful presence. If you were here today, and you believe that God exists, may I challenge you to take that next step on your faith journey. To not just acknowledge, yeah, God is up there, he exists. And not just to run to him in moments of doubt or moments of crises, but instead run to him in the mundane things of life. Run to him in the daily experiences that you and I struggle with. When we are facing a major financial decision or a minor one, draw near to him. When you need God to guide you on a difficult conversation with your son or your daughter, run to him. When you are simply feeling down or discouraged, draw near to God. Draw near to the one who is there. Here's why. When you do, I believe you'll find encouragement. That's not just my opinion. Listen to the words of James in chapter 4. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He'll draw near to you. So our belief in God helps us experience this closeness with God, but faith then also pushes us beyond just this needing or nearness. It pushes us to actually know our God, to understand who he is, because belief in God is how you and I understand him. It is through our faith 
that we learn to understand our God. Now, to grasp this point, we're going to be looking at a pair of Old Testament texts. We're going to look at a, a couple of different writings from the first five books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch. And the first one is found in the book of Exodus, chapter 34. And I had a bookmark here, but I seem to have lost said bookmark. So Exodus chapter 34, and we're going to be reading verses 5 through 7. Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the, fourth, to the third and the fourth generation." See, this text helps us see the nature of our God. He's not some unknown or unknowable God. God reveals himself. He reveals his character. He reveals his attributes in his word. The question is, do you and I want to know? Do we want to understand him? I think we do. Listen to the list one more time. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is slow to anger. He is abounding in faithful love. He is forgiving and he's just. We know he's just because he holds the guilty accountable. Church, this is the God of scriptures. This is who God tells us that he is. He's a God who has revealed his character to you and to me, and he's done through in his words so that we might know him. Do you know him by faith? The second Old Testament text is a little bit more brief. Helps us know and understand our God. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, this is a popular text because this is known as the Shema, and this is what God's people would recite each and every day. Now, the point of emphasis here is that our God is not divided into multiple parts, as, as pantheons might suggest. Instead, what happens here is he places the emphasis squarely on the one true and living God. And that's who we read about in the whole of Scripture. That theme is carried from the beginning of Scripture to the end. There is one true and living God. Now, some of you might say, well, wait a second, Pastor. There's more to that. When I read the Bible, I come across the idea of a father and of a son, and I am connected with the Trinity. Are you saying that's not there? I'm not saying that at all. What we need to understand today is that the Bible attests to one God in the three equal yet distinct persons. There is God the Father. There is God the Son. There is God the Holy Spirit. 
Church, this is why Jesus himself gives his people the following responsibility in the words of what you and I commonly refer to as the Great Commission. He says, go therefore and make disciples, not converts, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit one true and living God. So where does all this lead us? I mean, when it comes to belief in the truth, where does this take us? To know God, well, we need faith. It requires faith. And then to have faith, it must be built upon what God reveals himself to us in his word. And this God reveals himself to us as one God who exists in three equal but distinct persons. Now, some of you might be here right now in this moment saying, Pastor, that might be true. Everybody can kind of nod and say, yeah, yeah, I believe that. What does that have to do with me? How does that matter in my life in the middle of March in 2023? What does that have to do with someone in White Lake, Michigan? In a word, everything. It has everything to do with you. Because the fact of the matter is, it is hard, it's almost impossible to have faith in something that you don't know. Someone you don't know. It's very, very difficult. So God's people... So we are then encouraged to know God by knowing his word, to read the word, to meditate on the word, to pray through the word, to know the God who is in the Bible, to know him. This is one of the reasons something that happened on Wednesday night was a highlight for me. Each Wednesday night for the past six weeks, a group of us from our campus and now four people from outside of our church family have joined in the fun. And what we've been doing is we've been reading the first five books of the Old Testament together in a Bible reading experience called Immerse. Many of you have heard me talk about it before. But on Wednesday night, we met to discuss the Old Testament book of Leviticus. You can go ahead and laugh. If you've ever done a one-year reading plan, uh, this is where you kind of start in Genesis, goes great. You get to Exodus, yeah, we're still doing good. You hit Leviticus, and that is where one-year reading plans go to die. Right there. We're done. Not doing this any longer. Throw up their hands. All law, the blood, the temple, like I'm out. Amazingly, that is exactly the opposite of what happened in Merce on Wednesday night. Instead, God's people who've been reading and discussing God's word together began to see beyond the gory details of keeping the law, and they began to connect the truth of God in the Old Testament to the reality of God and the sacrifice of Jesus in the New Testament. They began to make these connections and make these links God's people began to see God for who he is in new and fresh ways. Church, I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that was one of the highlights of my pastoral ministry. 
what? Why? Because God's people began understanding and seeing God for who he really is. Not some caricature of God made in my image or in an image created by our culture, but instead seeing the God of the Bible. And let me tell you, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. So this experience then points us to the third and final point about belief. Belief in God is how you and I enjoy him. Belief in God through faith in his son is how you and I enjoy him. Now let's go back to our text in Hebrews, specifically Hebrews 11 in that second portion, verse 6. Without faith... It is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You see, the writer of Hebrews right here reminds us that everything begins with faith. Period. Everything revolves around faith because without faith, man can simply do nothing to please God. But wait a minute, Pastor. He's a really good guy. I mean, you really ought to see what he does for his neighbor. Great. But the character of that woman is so strong. Great. Without faith, man can simply do nothing to please God. But... For men, for women, for children who do have faith, now that, that's a game changer. That is a game changer. And here's what that pattern is laid out for us in this text. First, we get to believe that God exists, that he is who he says he is in the Holy Scriptures. You get that understanding like, yes, I acknowledge that God exists. Secondly, we have to believe that God rewards those who seek him. That as we come to him, he will reward us. Listen to the words of Psalm 24. For the lions, well, they suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord, well, they lack no good thing. They lack no good thing. But what is the good thing? I mean, what is the blessing spoken of in Psalm 24? What is the reward for the believer? The reward is God himself. It's God himself. It's forgiveness, it's redemption, it's salvation that is found in our Lord. Friends, it is the gospel. It's expressed in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's not of your good works. It's not of your religious activity. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. So the good news of the Christian faith is what God has done for you and for me in Jesus Christ in dying on a cross so that people of faith might have life that you and I might experience life. For it is God himself who provides grace and mercy through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for all 
who believe in him. For all who believe in him. So we'll close today with the bookend of where we began. With the first saying of the Apostles' Creed, I, I believe in God. This means that you believe that he is approachable and that as you draw near to him that he meets with you there. It means that he is knowable and that he can, in fact, be understood as we dig into God's word. And it means that you and I, believers in Jesus Christ, can enjoy him. We can enjoy him. So let me ask again. Do you believe in God? Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.